0: Henry Hansom was a larger-than-life outlaw cowboy. At least, that's how the legend goes. Henry Hansom lived and died examines the creation, evolution, proliferation, dissemination, and degradation of American folklore. Through 30 different short stories, the character, vague idea, false memory, misattributed anecdote, or influence of the titular Henry Hansom does everything from change the course of American media to sculpt modern-day knowledge of Manifest Destiny. Together, the collection represents the stories that create and define a culture, how those stories are told, and if they ever were to begin with, and if any of that matters at all. Each story was written, recorded, narrated, and produced by me, Elliot Matson. If you'd like to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmatsoncom slash henryhansom. But for now, saddle up and enjoy the story. Henry Hansom lived and died. Story number five. Millie Beaufort didn't want her good plates taken. Was it really too much to ask? The poor woman didn't want to have her plates taken. Not the good ones she'd received from Mr. Whitehead for a housewarming gift all those years ago. Nobody had plates like those. She, of course, hadn't been down to the Arnold Constable store on Pine Street, where they had rows of the damn things, white porcelain with golden rims, In those days, black folks, let alone women of her ripe old age, didn't venture all the way down to the southern tip of Manhattan. God bless her. And regardless, kids don't think about the history of heirlooms like that. Julius only had eyes on the future. Boy, I said I didn't want you taking my good plates, said Millie with a snap of her dish rag. What about this little one? Julius held it up delicately to his grandmother's nose. The dessert plate? Suppose you don't want dessert ever again, huh? Julius's eyes grew as wide as a saucer and he shook his head. Mm Mm-hmm. Go on, put that back. What's a ten-year-old boy want with my fine housewares anyhow? Julius growled despondently. Kids always think you should have remembered that thing that told you that you didn't care a lick about. Uh, I told you, Ma. It's for my time capsule. Your what? Julius revealed a large apple box. Its black lettering and red fruit design brushed against the wood grain like it was a message in sand being swept away by the tide. The boy had already collected a belt buckle, a military figurine, a swatch of gingham fabric he hoped his grandmother wouldn't notice was from one of the pillowcases, a beeswax candle, and a brief note he'd scrawled on thin paper welcoming the parcel's future onlooker. I'm going to bury this in the ground, and then in years and years and years, someone will find it and learn about what our lives in Seneca were like. The front door opened and Julius' father entered, all smiles as he believed his son should always see him. Tall and lean, my Beaufort often couldn't tell if Julius reminded her of Cal as a boy or if looking at Cal was like looking into her grandson's future. Maybe they were one and the same. (laughs) You selling apples now? Cal said as he took off his coat. I thought that was my job. Cal was a cart man delivering fruit and other sundries all around the Upper West Side. At the end of the day, when he'd feed any dented apples to his horse Matilda, he'd scratch her mane and joke that she got paid better than him. At least he had his freedom, though. His hunched mama might not have looked at nowadays, but she'd been savvy enough to work hard and buy their way out of slavery, then hoof it all the way to New York City from West Virginia. She'd long heard talk of Seneca Village and had told Cal about it since he'd been a boy on the plantation. A whole community of free blacks on an island in the middle of a city sounded downright fanciful to him until he laid eyes upon it himself. It's where he met Rhiannon, where she had their child, and where he prematurely laid her to rest. Ma might have seen Cal when she looked at Julius, but all Cal saw was the woman he married. And even though it made him sad... It made him all smiles, too. Have you become a businessman already, Julius? Uh, I'm not selling apples. It irritated Julius to have to explain himself twice. Reminds me of me when I was that age. And a bit now. I'm making a time capsule for the future since we have to leave. Cal chewed his lip. He understood what leaving the only home you knew was like for a boy as young as Julius. Where was he going to take his son and elderly mother now? Staten Island? Newton? Newton? Some damn place called Skunk Hollow? That meant traveling even further into the city for his deliveries. Maybe it meant losing his job altogether. Had the officials thought of that when they decided to displace hundreds of citizens for a damn park in the middle of the city? Of course not. Eminent domain my ass, thought Cal. They had to be out by the end of 1857 and it was already October. There goes the neighborhood. He smiled and nodded along as Julius presented and described the artifacts to him, each description containing more enthusiasm and energy than Cal had in his whole body at the moment. What do you want to add, Pop? (laughs) Nobody wants to open up a box of my old garbage, laughed Cal. Sure they do, and it's not garbage. It'll be like a treasure to them. Cal patted himself down to see if anything willingly shook out into the apple box. Then he sat on his chair at the table and crossed his leg to yank off his boot. From the heel, he removed a dusty brass spur. The eight-pointed star hung in Julius' eyes like the whole solar system. Cal supposed he could do without it. Matilda didn't need the extra motivation and generally did what she was told. Uh, how about this? Julius carefully took the spur from Cal's open palm and placed it in the box. He wrapped his arms around his daddy as far as he could, which wasn't all that far. Now, Cal thought. In a couple hundred years, some white folks will find a piece of him on their way to a fancy show. He wasn't that far off, come to think of it. In 1982, Corey Andrews would take up residency in a massive oak tree rooted at West 87th and Central Park West for five months to protest real estate development and the desecration of a public space. She wouldn't understand the irony. About 50 blocks away, as Julius ran out into the evening to solicit more artifacts from the remaining neighbors, Detective E.R. Stanton hunched over a corpse. As his match lit a cigar, his ruddy face held its grim visage like it was prone to do. I suppose I wouldn't be too chipper either if I was looking over my non-tomicide of the day. The body lay lukewarm and tossed in the corner like yesterday's garbage. Thirty-seven stab wounds, none of them all that big. Just one of them wouldn't have killed you, said the coroner. It was a sheer amount what did him in. Any suspects? Witnesses? Asked Stanton bluntly to the ranking officer nearby. I suppose this is police business, eh, Stanton? Stanton rolled his harsh eyes. For a brief time in 1857, due to a corrupt mayor and a whole heap other political mumbo-jumbo you don't care to hear about, two police forces had jurisdiction in Manhattan. The municipals under Mayor Wood, the metropolitans under the state. In a few short weeks, there'd be a riot, not too far from where this corpse was sprawled. But in the meantime... Tension simmered below the skin. Just tell me what the fuck you know, McCoy. McCoy, a tall, skinny Irish lieutenant who looked like he was wearing his daddy's uniform, acquiesced to the Bullish detective. Stanton always got his way. Uh, no. Nothing. Only a dead body. The size of the stab wounds matched the others from the past day, said the coroner. But until I can get a better look at them all together, we won't know if they're connected. Hard to identify bodies without teeth and fingertips, said McCoy, the know-it-all bastard. Stanton wanted to tell the Irish son of a bitch he wouldn't have any teeth left either if he kept disrespecting a metro detective. We do know there was a struggle, said the coroner. How's that? One of his fingertips was found by the street. There was blood and tissue under the nail. <clears throat> meaning he tried to claw his way out and it obviously didn't work. Uh, obviously, Stanton. Shut your fucking mouth, McCoy. You want to try it yourself, old man? Stanton leveled McCoy with a curt look and firm, square jaw. He reckoned there'd be time for fisticuffs later. At the present, he had nine consecutive murders to solve. The detective observed the nail, holding it to the sky toward the awakening street lamps, its tip like a blood-red crescent moon. The evening wore autumn like a stiff saddle, Julius hadn't taken a jacket and rubbed his bare arms before picking up the apple box and continuing on. He knocked on the eighth door of his rounds. This time, uh, Amos Cawley's. The blind man felt feebly at the air like he was parting a velvet curtain. He gave Julius one of his bow ties, a a navy one with polka dots. Justice Freeman gave him a sewing needle. Bonnie Aldean gave him a teacup. Sam Mills gave him his daughter's loose tooth that had just fallen out. At the present... Julius hadn't heard from his daddy where they'd go when they left Seneca. He knew better than to bring it up and make Cal upset. But where'd all these people go, he wondered. And would his mama stay here, buried in the ground with his time capsule? He said hello to her as he passed the Baptist church on his way to the village of South End. Millie made them attend every Sunday, sometimes more. A staunch, God fearing woman, she'd been taught as a Baptist on the plantation, she would remain one until her last days. She turned her nose to the folks who attended Seneca's Methodist Zion Church and the Lutheran Church, heathen variants of true Christianity as far as she was concerned. Julius had brought a small pouch to collect some dirt from around his mom's grave. He added that to the box, too. Stanton made his usual rounds when bad things like this happened, the brothels and backwater taverns that only illuminated when the kerosene burned brightest. He didn't believe nobody in the neighborhood had seen anything. A man like Stanton had a hard time finding his own dick than clues to murders. He knew where to poke, where to pride, where things shook out and where they didn't. But with the distraction of the police jurisdictions and Mayor Wood forming his own cabal, his mind had been foggy. He'd begun to doubt himself. He was getting a bit long in the tooth, after all. Multiple homicides a day start to wear on a man heavier in a mud-soaked overcoat. And that reminds me, it started to rain and top it all off. He chatted with a carp man making an evening delivery to Allen Grocers on West 96th. The black man's thick beard and mustache only revealed glimmers of white teeth like a blade slashing through the darkness. Now, Stanton knew these folks weren't exactly keen on talking to men of his stature, and he respected that. But he also believed that to live in a society, citizens need to cooperate. Stanton greased his palm and the carp man said he'd heard wind of a stabbing where the perpetrator took off southeast as the crow flies. Uh, How far did that crow fly, do you figure? Press Stanton. Boss, that's all I know, and I'm already late on this delivery. It was something, a thread to add to the rope which Stanton would eventually use to tie the noose. He just hoped it wouldn't be his own. John Aaron gave Julius a pair of old work gloves. Martin Atwood gave him a dried oak leaf pressed new picture frame. Helena Washington gave him one of her good plates. The box weighed against Julius's arms as he trudged through the rain. He knew very well he was disturbing mealtime for some families, drinking time for some individuals, what have you. But this was important work he intended to finish. Some of the houses in Seneca were already vacant. The city had prematurely started tearing down others. The Bristow House, they uh, had a daughter about Julius's age. The Thompsons and the Winstons, they were both well-to-do. Julius had no doubt they'd moved into mansions upstate, perhaps. The dilemma was either stay close to the city where you could find honest work and white folks might hold their tongues when you walked on the same sidewalk or move farther out where rural farmers didn't take too kindly to city folks, especially those city folks were well-educated black ones. They didn't hold their tongues and let their pitchforks do the talking for him. Millie had bought the Beaufort home from a wealthy black property owner who was looking to build the Seneca community. Either he'd given her quite a discount or she was a keen negotiator, who's to say? She and Cal tried not to discuss relocation possibilities or the bleakness of them when Julius was around. Julius walked along a row of empty houses on the east side of Seneca. In the darkness, they looked like larger versions of his apple box, all probably holding relics. The difference was, everything left inside them would probably be destroyed along with the houses themselves. So, he thought, what would be the harm in taking just a few things. Julius gave the empty street a once-over and approached the Johnson's old house. He always liked their green shutters. He hoped he could have shutters on his house someday. Stanton lit another cigar, even though he told his wife he was down to five a day. He watched a slow train of horse carriages amble along Columbus. He nudged a drunk leaned against a building and pressed him for information. Nothing. He puffed the stogie down to its stub as he stared, dreary-eyed across the street at the Oaks Tavern. Another thing he'd promised his wife. But these were unprecedented times, he reasoned. Lawmen can always talk themselves into anything, believe me. The last bits of tobacco crumbled under Stanton's foot. The street was dim and bare. He crossed it. It's entirely possible Stanton returned to the drink at some point later in his life if death by liver and kidney failure point to anything. But on this evening in October 1857, E.R. Stanton's lips did not touch a drop of alcohol nor the glass it came in. His hand didn't even reach the door of the Oaks Tavern when he heard the scream. Maybe it echoed all the way to Seneca as it wasn't all that far away. But Julius wouldn't have been able to hear it. The boy was too enamored with forgotten military figurines lying the shelves beside the mantel. Beside them, a stack of books. Now, he wondered, what might someone opening up a time capsule enjoy reading? Oliver Twist or Nicholas Nickleby? He settled on a shorter one called William Wilson by someone named Edgar Allan Poe because he liked the name. He chose a figurine of a rifleman for the box and kept the small cannon for himself, even though he knew it was wrong to steal. Julius peered into the empty dining room. The Beauforts didn't have a whole room dedicated to dining, but he pieced together the space's functionality by the large rectangular dust outline on the floor surrounded by six smaller square ones. Through a skinny door, he saw tiles and cabinetry. One of them swung softly on its hinges, waving him to the holy grail of artifacts. Julius's box probably couldn't hold much else, but his curiosity got the better of him. He set the box on the counter and climbed up to check inside the highest cabinet shelves. He padded around like old Mr. Cawley in the dark, running his hand along coarse wood. That's when he heard the back door. (laughs) Julius gasped and ran to the pantry to hide. Through the slatted door, he peered around the corner without so much as a breath. Stanton spat tobacco and filth when he got to Dick's General Store. His knees almost gave out on him a few times along the way, but the weight of the case caught him. A man and woman dressed in theater attire hunched inside a narrow bodega. Now, I say theater attire, is that's what Stanton later described in his notes. But I ain't never been to a theater and couldn't tell you the first thing about the clothing you wear to one. An elderly shopkeep lay on the floor clutching his neck. Blood squirted through his clenched fingers like he was pressing on Old Faithful. Ah, get out of the way, barked Stanton. When he assessed the situation further, he realized maybe he shouldn't have been so gruff and walked back his temper. Uh, Did you already call for help? The woman nodded feverishly, and the man yelled out the door again. We just found him like this. She choked on her words, but not as much as the fellow on the floor. You didn't see anything, said Stanton. "Uh, Give me your jacket, he ordered the man. Sure, he could have just as easily removed his own, but he didn't see the point. The man handed him the fancy twill blazer, and Stanton wrapped a sleeve around the shopkeep's neck. He told the woman to hold it firmly against the wound as he tied a knot. The shopkeep howled, but it was more like a gurgle. You're going to be fine, said Stanton emotionlessly. At least the murders would stay below double digits for now. Hey. Hey. He snapped in the shopkeep's face. Who did this? The shopkeep tried to speak, but it was no use. Phil was about to pass out anyway. Is he saying... R- rye? Said the woman curiously. Er, no. a guy? Stanton snapped again. Hey, hey, why do you keep touching your eye like that? What are you saying? Sir, said the man who used to be wearing full feeder attire. It's detective. Uh, Apologies, a couple people said they saw a man running that way, and they think he had a knife in his hand. Woods Municipal showed up and Stanton pointed to the shopkeep. Over here, boys. Get off your asses and help. What are you doing here, Stanton? This is our jurisdiction. Fuck your jurisdiction. He bumped McCoy harder than was necessary as he took off out the door. Julius heard the heavy footsteps on wood and then tile. He stood as still as possible, worried his heartbeat would give him away. A man shortened his daddy crept into the kitchen. He checked the open cabinets that Julius had. Julius noticed his apple box on the counter before the man. When he gasped, the door shook and they locked eyes. Julius was about to scream when a rough hand pressed against his mouth. The man held a finger to his lips. His frazzled red hair shone vividly even in the dark kitchen. A dirty white cloth wrapped diagonally covered his eye. The dried, circular blood stain along with his naked eye gave the man a look of constant surprise. When the man removed his hands, Julius whispered bravely, "Uh, You better leave. My daddy's upstairs, and he's got a gun. The man grinned a mouthful of crooked teeth. He spoke in the same lyrical way the fells of the Seneca tenement house did. These hoises are all empty boyo. But you're a good liar. The man dragged Julius out of the pantry by his ear. Good, let me go. Why should I? You're supposed to be here as much as I am. And you've seen my face. So he's about to kill you right now and get it over with. Julius wriggled free and kicked the man in the shin. The man crumpled to his knees. God Christ in heaven. The man wailed before hushing himself. I'm pulling your leg, boyo. What kind of sick fucker would I be to kill a lot of your age? Julius bawled his hands into tiny fists. Then why did you say it? Why are you here? The man squinted in the darkness. Ah, you're that cartman's son, ain't you? You think he'd like to know his son was snooping around an empty house? Julius had never seen the man before in his life. Evidently, the man had seen him. Both of them turned in fear as the back door creaked again. The man reached inside his coat. "'Harry! Harry!' a voice whispered. "'Harry! Are you in here?' The man dropped his hand and sighed as a pudgy Irish kid with puffy sideburns round the corner. "'Christ! How many people are in this fuckin' house? You got your sisters and your granny upstairs too, I suppose. What the fuck are you doing here, Denny?' "'Looking for you!' Denny glanced sidelong at Julius. "'What's with the kid?' "'Don't worry about him,' said Harry.' I'm not the one who's looking for you. We'd better get a move on. Harry smacked Danny in the head. You came to my hiding spot to tell me people are looking for me? How oh, fucking daft are you? You think they're going to be looking for you in an abandoned empty house where you should be? Or a building with a bunch of other mix where you should? Harry weighed his options. Uh, fine, fine. Good point. Let's get on then. Julius grabbed his apple box and started for the door when Harry stopped him. Uh, where do you think you're going? Uh, home, Julia said meekly. Nah, nah. Stop at the police station on your way there, will ya? What? No. I'd like to say I believe you, but you're coming with us. Stanton wasn't so much running anymore as he was briskly walking while holding his slacks up. A few folks here and there said they saw a man running, but the trail went cold toward Seneca Village. He figured he'd drag his ass all the way here, so he might as well do some more police work while he was at it. He started knocking on doors. The first one was a blind man, go figure that. Uh, Mrs. Freeman hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary. Neither had uh, Mrs. Aldean. Sam Mills wanted nothing to do with the police. Stanton sat on a bench and patted his pockets for another cigar. You hate to come up empty in times like these, I'll tell you. The stars were a thousand stabs through the night sky and Stanton couldn't draw lines connecting any damn one of them. He pondered if he was past his prime. Or confirmed it, at least. Julius entered the tenement building at the far south end of Seneca Village behind Harry and Denny. His daddy had told him never to venture over to these parts. He didn't trust the Irish and German folk encroaching on their neighborhood. They all seemed nice enough to Julius... Waist high to the pale, huddled masses crowding the hallways and common spaces of the decrepit brick building. Folks made small talk with Denny and asked Julius about his apple box. Henry hugged the corners as they made their way through. In the light, his scowl was more pronounced, his beard more fiery. Most men drank beer and played cards, some arm wrestled, one wrote poetry by the fire. Charlie O'Halloran gave Julius his lucky rabbit's foot. Peter Flint gave him an arrowhead he said he found while working in a coal mine upstate. Hans Grunel gave him a small Bavarian flag. Carl Kahn, who changed his name to Carl May at Ellis Island, gave him a drawing of a boy wearing later hosen. Arthur McBride gave Julius his poem. And Julius promised not to read it. He promised. A fellow playing a reel on his fiddle in the living room stopped when he saw Harry. The room went quiet. Heston. He gave the fiddle to a cherubic boy beside him and stood. His thick sweater covered his belly like a tattered mast. What makes you think you can show your face around here? Harry stepped right into the man's face, horse chin being that he wasn't that tall. I can step wherever I want, Finley. Even if it happens to be on that fat trode of yours. Hold it, shouted Denny, squirming his way between the adversaries. I brought him here, Finley. He just needs a place to sleep for the night. We don't like associating with men of his kind. Last I checked, we're the same kind. Finley shook his head staunchly. That is gravely untrue. The room held its breath. Julius clutched the ridges of his apple box. Even though it was getting to be quite heavy for the boy, he didn't want to drop it and cause a commotion. Millie always told him children were supposed to be seen and not heard after all. Millie answered the door at 9 p.m. She just put on her night robes, and I reckon I personally wouldn't want to disturb her at this hour. Ma? Who is it? asked Cal. Ma'am. Sir. I'm Detective Stanton. New York Metropolitan Police. Stanton made sure to emphasize metropolitan. Is there a problem? We own this house until December, and I ain't gonna stand here and listen to you. Ma. Ma. Please. Cal steadied the old woman and apologized to the Detective, whose patience was already wearing thin. Uh... What can we do for you? I'm not here to kick you out of your house, ma'am. I'm looking for a murder suspect. Some officers sugar-coated things, especially in the company of women, children, and the elderly. Stanton, uh, he didn't have a sweet tooth. Lord almighty. What do you mean? Here? In the village? Calm down, please. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I found a victim, still alive, 15 blocks away. Witnesses pointed me in this direction now I'm here. Did anyone see anything here? (sighs) No. Not John Aaron. Not Martin Atwood. Not Helena Washington either. Stanton was about ready to go home. Or back to the Oaks Tavern. Ma, did Julius come home yet? Millie scrunched her brow. "Mm, No. I don't think so. Stanton watched Cal sprint to his coat and put on a pair of boots with one spur between them. He pushed past Stanton and apologized again. The detective thought about trying to follow him, but his legs thought otherwise. He continued his rounds and hoped the man found his boy. At the very least, if a body turned up, he'd know he was on the right track. Finley Riley gave Julius a small piece of the rosin cube he used on his fiddle bow. Tensions had eased in the tenement house. Danny sprawled on a sofa. Harry bit into a loaf of day-old bread he said he'd bought at a shop. What kind of shop's open at this hour? The kind I buy bread at, I suppose. Harry muffled a fucking arsehole with another chump. Finley kept his eyes on Harry as he played another tune. Julius sat on a wooden stool with the apple box on his lap, listening to music. Millie would tell him about singing on the plantation, how it got them through the day and sometimes through the nights. But the singing sounds so happy, Julius would say, even though the words weren't. Millie told him that's just how it was. Julius wondered if it was the same for these men. "'Excuse me?' he asked a stout German man drinking an awful smell of alcohol beside him. "'What time is it?' "'Sin!' Julius popped off the stool and headed for the door when Harry caught him by the arm. "'Did I tell you you could leave, boyo?" "'Harry,' said Denny. "'He's a wee lad. What's he going to do? You're being paranoid is what you are.' Harry scowled and looked the boy up and down. "'Ah, fine,' he said. But you don't ever speak of this ever again. You hear me? Julius nodded quietly. And you've got to let me add something to that there apple box of yours. Uh, sure, said Julius. He opened the lid that now barely closed, trinkets compressed into calcified memory. Harry stuck his arm in his coat and pulled out a small Whitland knife with a dark wooden handle. He also took out a kerchief and wiped the blade clean taking it from a deep red to an iridescent silver before Julius' eyes. You like to whittle? asked the boy nervously. Eh, ah, something like that. Harry tossed the blade in the box and Julius sealed the lid. We'd better get you upstairs, said Denny. As Harry climbed the creaky wooden steps, the red splotch on his eye bandage followed Julius out the door. Julius walked back north and passed a winded man with a block head and thick haunches but he paid no mind to any distractions. Stanton knocked at the front door of the tenement house and fiddle music inside halted. Finley answered and asked what the man wanted. Looking for a murderer? No, no, Finley told him. Only upstand Irishmen and Germans here. One's Mayor Wood vouched for, as matter of fact. Stanton scowled. Told Finley if he heard anything, to report it immediately. Harry Heston peered out the second floor window as the detective disappeared into the night. Cal spotted Julius in the lamp light and ran to his son. He didn't want to tell the boy murder was on the loose, so he just said not to stay out so late without saying something. When he got back home, Julius went around the back to the hole he'd already dug. The rain had collapsed the sides a bit, but it was a still-functioning tomb for the time capsule. He carefully placed the box inside, took the spade from the garden, and scooped earth over it. He listened to the sound of the dirt and sand roll over the wood, Little by little, like minutes and months and years tumbling toward forever. And so the box sat there, in its hole, tucked away. Away from peer eyes, citizens, serial killers, detectives. The Beauforts moved out of Seneca to the Bronx before being pushed further to Stanton Island. Eventually, they probably couldn't say they moved from Seneca because Seneca didn't exist. The earth was excavated, memories, lifetimes exhumed by oblivious grave robbers. This was the new New York, one that valued nature and the integrity of its land. The box sat there in the ground some more. Somehow, it avoided the chaos of construction, weathered the storm a change. By then, its varnish had peeled. Grubs and worms had picked away emulsified apple atoms from its surface, It had fused with the earth as the earth got ripped apart and re-sculpted. Berms and gravel trails, ponds and gardens emerged on the surface. The box lay in the same dirt below. Its contents remained unscathed. The box didn't know what they were to begin with. It just knew it had to protect them, even when their owners were long gone, even when they ceased being anyone's possessions and became simply a collection of things. The box had its job. It kept them safe. If someday somebody laid eyes upon it, they couldn't say it didn't do its job. Or maybe nobody ever would. Uh, But that ain't the point. Folks flocked here to behold the impressive artistry of the park. The box felt their footsteps indiscernible to any others it had ever felt. They marveled at the sheer beauty and spectacle. The box didn't feel a thing. They praised city workers and the local government for devoting the real estate to preservation rather than capitalism. The box went on preserving all the same. They shook their heads in awe and said, Golly, if you didn't know better, you'd forget you were in a city. You'd forget anyone ever lived here. Thanks for listening to Henry Handsome Lived and Died. If you'd like to learn more about the collection, go to elliottmatson.com slash